Tuesday morning, Gil Alexander, your betting dork, pregame.com. Thank you for tuning in. Gonna talk nothing but baseball today. Gonna give my thoughts on, you know, brief thoughts that is, on each and every ball game in Major League Baseball today. Just gonna touch on each. I do have two picks um, that can be seen on the thread or in the thread, I should say, on the pregame forums. And again, thanks to everyone who stops by and gives comments and feedback and actually teaches me a thing or two in my daily MLB thread. Always a great exchange of ideas. Love to hear what folks are thinking. Um, I'm going to do that towards the end of the show. I do Well, not towards the end of the show. I'm going to do it in a moment. Um, but I do want to get into a subject um, somebody asked me the other day. And they they sort of said, "All right, Gil, this is the sabermetric stuff is is interesting and everything, cute, if you will. I'm not sure they use the word cute, but just for the purposes of the story, let's say they said it was cute. But essentially, that was the sort of tone in their voice when they asked me. Um, but they said th- their essential uh, angle of the question was, now what in sabermetrics? Hasn't everything been exhausted?" And I thought it was a pretty interesting question. And actually, you know, he was sort of intimating it's over. They've thought of everything sort of tone to his question. And the truth is, is that you'll never quite believe, uh, in my opinion anyway. Well, part of it's my opinion, but part of it's actually fact where it's going. But I can only uh, give an opinion on where I think it will go additionally. Uh, to that sabermetrics, by the way, and I and you know someone asked me in the forums the other day just what what the origin of sabermetrics was, and it's probably worth you know I've been doing the um, the thread and the podcast now for almost two months, well at least the thread for almost two months that I should probably just give the basics from the beginning, and the basics real quickly is that sabermetrics was a term uh, defined by Bill James the godfather of baseball statistical analysis. Sabre comes from, and it's sort of S-A-B-R, stands for the Society for American Baseball Research. And they're a group that does more than sabermetrics. They're a group that just really sort of has the best long-term statistical interest uh, in baseball in mind. Talking, you know, they go back into the Negro Leagues and all kinds of stuff. Sabermetrics was not necessarily their focus, but from the Society for American Be- uh, Baseball Research, Saber and the term Sabermetrics was coined uh, by Bill James. And of course, he was one of its most influential pioneers. I would say its single most influential pioneer and continues uh, to be that way to this day. But essentially, he defined it. Um, as the search for objective knowledge about baseball. So Saber Metrics attempts to answer objective questions about baseball and really, as I like to say, seeks the truth. Um, the real sort of uh, evolution for many of us, and I'll give it real briefly, the sort of arc of how most of us grow up who are baseball geeks you collect baseball cards, you look at the back of the card, you see home runs, RBIs, and average for offense. You see wins, losses, and ERA <clears throat> Excuse me for pitching, and those are the stats sort of in our childhood that we came to know and love. And what the sabermetrics movement sprung by Bill James and a myriad of folks thereafter who have taken the ball and run with it beyond, I'm sure, what Bill James could have ever imagined, um, delved deeper. 
And I think really for me, and I think everyone acknowledges the tipping point from a mass standpoint was the book published uh, in the early 2000s, I want to say it was in 2002, Moneyball by Michael Lewis, uh, who's an, just a, an acclaimed author who, by the way, you should probably read anything Michael Lewis writes. I know his latest one, I believe, was the Wall Street book, basically exposing how we got into this mess uh, in this country thanks to Wall Street, and I can't remember the title offhand, but Michael Lewis wrote a book called Moneyball in 2002, which brought the notion of how scouting was shifting in baseball from an old, grizzled, tobacco-chewing baseball lifer who, you know, drove from minor league town to minor league town and gave his very experienced... Uh, viewpoint of ball players back to the home team or back to the uh, I should say the parent club's front office that that was now shifting to a group of geeky never having played before you know baseball ne- never never playing baseball Ivy League educated guys who may not only have never played baseball who may na- who may never have even laid eyes on the specific baseball players they were giving opinions about. They were simply doing it from behind a laptop. And, of course, this caused a huge cultural um, clash in baseball, the old school and this new geeky school that was coming to the fore that, of course, like anything in life, was sort of slow to be accepted and slow to be uh adapted or adopted rather by the mainstream in baseball first of all by, by the collective think in baseball and then by um extension owners who were willing to pay the money to actually pursue the route of this type of scouting in baseball but essentially moneyball chronicled billy bean in oakland who was dealing with a fraction of the payroll that at that time Teams like the Yankees and Red Sox and Dodgers then and the Orioles then, uh, throw the Dodgers and Orioles into that group back then, um, what they were able to really have in payroll for their entire franchise. These guys were eclipsing, the talking about the Orioles, Dodgers, Red Sox, and Yankees at the time were eclipsing $100 million uh, in payroll. Of course, the Yankees are double that nowadays, and the Orioles and Dodgers are not in this group um, for various reasons. The Orioles, because they've seen the errors of their ways, no pun intended, uh, and uh, the Dodgers, just because of a, a divorce issue at the top between the McCourts. But they were paying over $100 million in payroll, and teams like the Athletics, with ownership that just wouldn't allow it and didn't have it, they say, you give us a contending ball club with less than half that. And so Billy Bean's task in Oakland was to figure out, hmm, How do I remain competitive with less than half the payroll? And Moneyball describes how he came to adopt the sabermetrics philosophy in baseball and how to scout players. And what he did was find market inefficiencies as a result in the market of obtaining players throughout the minor league universe, the college universe, the high school universe. And what they discovered, you know, if if I could distill the book into 30 seconds to 60 seconds is that these old notions of these stats, home runs, RBIs, average, wins, losses, ERA, you know, they long knew 
that these were not the best stats to go on for most players and most front offices were still going on these stats and acquiring players but they under they they really delved into on base percentage and pitches per plate appearance on the offensive end they minimized the importance of stolen bases in their thinking and they did all kinds of studies saying how stolen bases didn't really mean anything and translate into run production in the long run. And what they ended up with players in Oakland, they ended up with players like Scott Hattieberg, um, who had an amazing pitches per plate appearance uh, and on-base percentage. Uh, pitchers like uh, Chad Bradford, who while not your prototypical fireballer, who struck out people left and right, was a guy who just got outs. His ability to produce outs was off the charts in the minors. No one wanted Scott Hattieberg. No one wanted Chad Bradford. Now, these are players who are really not in our daily lexicon today. But for a stretch of three or four years, really helped the A's go to the playoffs, really every year, perennially. Now, the A's never won the World Series, as Billy Bean would very openly tell you. I can get you to the playoffs with this sabermetric money ball approach. Once you're in the playoffs, it's just a crapshoot because there's not enough games, quite frankly, to make the statistics bear out. So it was a completely mathematical viewpoint on things, and it makes sense. But, of course, after the world read money ball and after the rest of the league read money ball, the jealousies of Bean... The imitation as the greatest form of flattery to Bean, the market efficiencies on those types of ball players, on base percentage, pitches per plate appearance, that type of stat, those went away because everyone was now hip to it. Not only was everyone hip to it, but those of us laymen in the public world beyond inside baseball, we sort of adopted these stats as, yeah, I'm all about on base percentage and pitches per plate appearance and. You know, I know all about this kind of stuff now. I'm down with all that. Well, Billy Bean then had to go one step further while everyone had caught up on that count. And by the way, it wasn't just Billy Bean at that point. Theo Epstein was now doing this uh, in Boston. Uh, Riccardi, I believe that's how you pronounce it, was doing it in L.A. and then Toronto. These are all, uh, he was a Billy Bean protege. So essentially it was spreading around uh, baseball. The Red Sox had made a huge offer to Billy Bean. He had turned it down at that time, before Theo Epstein got the, got the gig. Theo Epstein, of course, has subsequently won two World Series in Boston doing this. But that was what happened in this last decade in Major League Baseball. A very clever way of equaling the playing field in baseball. And Moneyball is a phenomenal book that certainly influenced me, I know, in my thinking on sabermetrics almost at this point, a decade ago, which is sort of hard to even wrap my brain around. So then Billy Bean went to defensive market inefficiencies. Okay, we've sort of tapped into offense. Everyone's caught up to us now. He started getting into defensive stats. All of this is a long-winded way of giving you the answer to that initial question as, where is this going? Well, I I've often quoted defensively UZR, Ultimate Zone Rating, 
which is a widely accepted defensive saber metric based on 64 zones and subzones on a baseball field, which in essence give an evaluation of how good or bad each fielder on every team is. Well, the reason that I always quote ultimate zone rating for defense is because, honestly, it's the one that everyone can have access to. I often quote the Fangraphs website as a place where you can go to get UZR and other sabermetric stats. So UZR is one that we can sort of not only sink our teeth into, to a degree, right? We're not breaking down the formulas for sure, but at least we can actually look at the numbers if you're so inclined. That's not to say that there aren't many, many other metrics that attempt to assess defense. There are for offense, too. But as Billy Bean went to defense disposal, and so did then any front office in baseball so inclined to try to use defense now as a measuring stick, figuring, all right, everyone's caught up on the offensive side, sabermetrically speaking. Now let's assess players from a defensive standpoint where others have not thought to do so. By the way, it's the complete basis why this year the Red Sox acquired the likes of Adrian Beltre, Marco Scudero, and Mike Cameron. And they didn't do so based on UZR. They did so based on a metric by someone named John Dewan, who was the former president and CEO of Stats, which is a company that provides stats not only for baseball, but for every major American sport. But in 2002, right around the publishing of Moneyball, Dewan founded Baseball Info Solutions, a company that specialized in collecting, interpreting, and disseminating in-depth baseball stats. His defensive metric went a little something like this. He employed a whole bunch of people who basically tracked every single play of every single game all year long for every team. That was their job. And at the end of seasons, Dewan would have a complete log of every ground ball, fly ball, line drive, or something he called fliners, sort of hybrid, right? And... He'd have it for roughly, not 64 zones, which we have in UZR, try 3,000 zones on a baseball diamond. 3,000. So he can see, you know, which center fielders, um, or which left fielders, or which right fielders, or anybody on the, on the baseball diamond, who caught the most balls, who caught the least balls, and what he could do is use that information for every one of those tiny 3,000 zones and he can tell you how every player in baseball plays his position relative to everyone else. And what he came up with then is a simple plus-minus number. Hockey folks know what that's all about, right? But he's got a plus-minus number. It's a little different, right? But he's got a plus-minus number for each of these players. And then he's got some proprietary formula which converts it to a very tidy runs-saved statistic. Plus-minus would be the exact number tabulated on a play-by-play -play basis of plays a defender makes above or below the league average fielder at that position, basically. And then he converts it to run saved, and that conversion is too complicated for the purposes of this podcast, or quite frankly, anything. But again, those are that's how the Red Sox and Theo Epstein is trying to exploit an inefficient market for acquiring players these days. And time will tell if that works well for the Red Sox. But essentially, those three guys, Beltre, Cameron, and Scudero, saved them and earned them a lot of runs over the long haul of the season 
versus the guys they had in those positions. The reason that we don't, or that I never bring up Dewin's run saved stat is because you can't get it for free anywhere. You actually have to pay a subscription to Bill James' website. Dewin and Bill James have a relationship. Bill James now works in the Red Sox front office. You now see the connection. But you have to pay a monthly fee to his website to get Dewin's numbers, so that's why I never quote them, because it's not quite as fun if you can't look at the numbers. Most people aren't willing to pay the subscription, is what I'm trying to say. But again, that's not the only other system. There's, there's many systems based on the same concept, uh, dividing the field into zones, comparing you know, each fielder to its peers. But the answer to the question then, I, you know, I didn't give that whole long preamble, but here's what's going on now in baseball. The next wave of sabermetrics springs from this, and I am predicting an additional offshoot. Right now, there's something called Pitch FX. So every major league ballpark, and I think it was introduced a few years ago on um, MLB Game Day, an online function, it basically tracks the curve, the break, uh, the velocity of pitches. And they got special cameras installed at every ballpark. Well, this is done by a company, or it's, it's actually done by MLB Advanced Media. Now, they have this Pitch FX thing going on already, and what they're coming out with and geeks are, trust me, eagerly awaiting it. They're waiting for hit FX. Hit FX is going to track the actual trajectory of the ball when it comes off the bat. Now, I'm not making this up. They're going to get into, like, vectors and degree angles, trajectory upwards, speed in miles per hour off the bat, all this kind of stuff in order to assess defense. Because once, you know, how Dewin does this now in terms of his 3,000 zones, he's got an army of people manually logging. Well, once HitFX is into place, he's going to be able to, like, access this information in a blink of an eye, and you're going to even have better analysis of what fielders can do with, I'm sure, the standard debates as to how it's best quantified. I believe, though, and finally getting to the answer to that initial question I told you <laughs> told you about, I believe what they're going to get to now, because they're going to use this for better defensive projections, which they believe the next wave is going to be with this new HitFX technology. I believe they're going to start using angles that balls are hit off specific players' bats, trajectory, as an indicator, as a metric, to how successful a batter usually is based on the way the ball comes off that bat. In other words, I believe, my thinking is, is that they're going to come up with a, uh, a range of angles off Major League Baseball players' bats that are going to be sort of in an optimal angle zone, trajectory zone, and angles that are not optimal, that usually results in outs. And they're going to be able to determine which baseball players, which offensive ball players, have the greatest penchant for hitting balls off their bats at the angles that are the most optimal, meaning resulting in either base hits or home runs. And yes, there'll be a luck factor in all that as well. Honestly, that's where I believe it's going. 
Now, I know that was a 20-minute answer to the initial question. But that's sort of how the evolution of sabermetrics has gotten to this point. Very brief overview of sabermetrics and where I believe it's going next. Because to the, the question of they've done everything, my response is, oh, they haven't done everything. It's about to get even uglier with angles off bats. And I cannot even, <laughs> I cannot even fathom the geekiness of that statistics, but if you, of that statistic, but if you think about it, if there's a way to quantify it, if there's a way to somehow make an assessment that I'm just going to throw out a player that Miguel Cabrera of the Detroit Tigers has a penchant for the ball coming off his bat at a certain angle, angle vector, whatever the term is that they're going to use. And it falls within a range that has been known to be the optimal angular range for success at the plate. And he does it a percentage of times that is that far exceeds, you know, someone else on another team. And if you learn that he does it even far more often than a guy like, I don't know, I'm just going to throw another player. I mean, let's say we learn that Albert Pujols, uh, I don't know, I'm just talking talking off the top of my head now, but you get what I'm saying, that we could learn that certain players do it all the time, and so their likelihood for success at the plate is even greater than we previously imagined, and conversely, we can find out that certain players get luckier more often than not. Sort of that BABIP, batting average on balls in play, metric that I often use for pitchers to determine if they've been fortunate or non-fortunate. Anyway, that's just my thought on that. <laughs> I say that's just my thought on that some 20 minutes later. But that's where it could be going. I know that was hella geeky right there. Um, by the way, this is coming from a guy whose career has been spent in hip-hop music. So, call me a geek. But I'm a geek who likes hip-hop. So, all that to say, those of us who are into this kind of stuff, are quite comfortable with it. And it makes sense in the end, as comical as it is on the one hand. And I do recognize it's comical. Because you're like, dude, just give me the outcome of baseball games. That's how I chose to use it. See, all these sabermetricians who are doing all this stuff, they're doing it either to, you know, if you're in baseball, to acquire players as best as they can in an inefficient market for as low a cost as possible. And that's what the Red Sox did with Scudero and Cameron and Beltre. Got them for a dime, you know, for very low cost. What I try to do is convert it into a betting advantage. That's all I'm about. I'm not trying to be in a lab and create formulas and delve into minutiae. I want to see the numbers. And what I've become, what's sort of become my thing over the years is interpreting those numbers. Because everyone has access to certain numbers at some point. But to interpret them is a whole different deal. And that requires sort of just diving in over time. And you sort of figure out what is and what is not important. Because one of the big things as a sabermetrics guy is you have to realize everyone's going to sort of tag you as a geek. And you have to have the ability to sort of step back and be like, yeah, you know what? 
maybe this is a little too geeky here. Let me just step back for a second and assess this ball game without sabermetrics. It's a tool. And when harnessed properly, it is an extremely powerful tool. Let's talk baseball today. 15 ball games. Yesterday, again, a slow, slow day with only four games. Actually, probably came at the right time, if you want to know the truth. I think we could use a four-game day in baseball. I didn't see anything on the board, uh, and I was, you know, quite happy to stay away. Today, as you have seen, if you have checked out the MLB thread, I got two plays. I like Oakland. I like Detroit. Those are the two games that I pulled the trigger on. But let's talk about just each and every one real briefly. And when I say real briefly, I may even give just five seconds on some of these. But 15 ball games today, and I won't do this probably again, but it's sort of how the process is in terms of capping for me. And when I do this, I always delve into the sabermetrics for every single ball game. Not necessarily the defensive stats. How I sort of do it is I have a first wave of capping. The games that I then end up interested in after that first wave, I then dive into further with the sabermetrics always being part of the first wave. But if I really get into a game, I'll go as deep as I need to. Sox and Indians, though. Here's a game right off the top. Peavy against Talbot. I didn't really need to dive too far into this game. Because Peavy and Talbot, and here's where I sort of back off and sort of get back into the real world. And you just say, all right, how are these guys doing right now? And Peavy and Talbot are two pitchers who were really shaky last time they were on the mound. Peavy gave up six earned runs against the Angels last time, which was really a sort of um, relapse for him. He was terrible early in the year, and he had looked really good of late. And then all of a sudden, he puts out this clunker performance. And then with Talbot, again, same sort of trajectory, or excuse me, opposite sort of trajectory as Peavy, had a great early season. And then all of a sudden, um, you know, nothing. Talbot allowed six runs on eight hits, you know, in six innings against KC last time out. And so you look at that game, you look at some of the, you know, and you say, okay, well, you know, let me just see the line, and I'll punch the line up right now as we're speaking. Is there anything there... um, that makes this interesting in any way beyond that initial assessment of uh oh you got two shaky pitchers and I'll go into the sabermetrics of each of these games so I actually went into the sabermetrics of PV and Talbot both um, I won't get into the sabermetric stats for each of these games because we'll be here all day long but you know when you look at the line for a game like that and you see and I'll call up what it is right now PV is minus 135. I wouldn't be willing to lay minus 135 on PV right now. And then when I look at Talbot, I'm like, well, if I'm going to play Talbot, you better be giving me more than plus 125 in a situation like that. And so that's one of those games, your initial reaction is, eh, that doesn't, doesn't seem that appealing to me right off the hand, right off the top. And again, starting pitchers, just a starting point. If it had shown some interest in, you know, if I had shown some interest in it, or if it had demanded interest beyond that to me, I then, of course, get in much deeper. Um, I gave you my assessment on the thread about Dallas Braden against the Orioles today. Uh, long story short, with that ball game, in case you don't have a chance to go online and are listening to this on a jog or something, uh, Braden and Guthrie have both had great seasons. 
Uh, Guthrie is not to be underrated. He has had a very fine season. Um, but, you know, Brayton is coming off. He just played a very tough Tigers offense that he pretty much held down. Two runs over six innings. Had to leave the game due to illness. So he's been going strong. It's not just a situation where he had a perfect game and nothing else. He's been great all year long. Seven out of nine quality starts. But so is Guthrie. Seven out of nine quality starts for him. The problem for him is he plays the Orioles. He plays for the Orioles, I should say. Um, and, you know, when you dive into the sabermetrics, and I'll just do a brief overview... Braden's FIP and XFIP, fielding independent pitching, once again, a stat that I love using to assess um, the ability of pitchers beyond the standard conventional statistic of earned run average. Those all confirm that he's having a year that is about a half run better than Guthrie is. Um, which is just, again, one note. It's certainly not, oh, he's having a half-run year better both in FIP and XFIP because, you know, they're not playing the same teams and so it's not an equal comparison type of thing. But it is something to note and be like, oh, interesting. It's most interesting to note, you know, in comparison with their ERA because we're trying to find value in the betting line. But in this case, you had to go beyond that sort of micro you know, for a ball game like this, it was more than just a sort of microanalysis. Because I think if you get too uh, into the minutia of a game like this, you miss the bigger picture, which is just that the A's own the Orioles. They've beaten them 13 out of their last 15. Yes, the A's have lost 12 of 14 on the road, but the Orioles do just get spanked by the A's. 13 out of 15, Baltimore won 3 of 4 from the Birds earlier this season. The Orioles have all kinds of injuries in their bullpen. Um, and for me, having just seen the A's sweep the Giants in a big rivalry series out here in the Bay, they had a day to sort of travel and let all that sink in. It wasn't like they were playing the Orioles the next day where there could have been a really big letdown. They've had a day to sort of back off it. I love the A's against the team in the Orioles that has the worst record in baseball and has only won 14 games overall, period. And you're getting Braden at minus 105. At least that's where I got it last night. <clears throat> Checking it right now. And it is at, you know, minus 110. Just went up a nickel to this point. But that's why I went with the A's. Uh, real quick, Braves and, uh, and uh, Marlins. This is one of those games where I just have no feel for whatsoever with Kawakami and Sanchez. Because both of them, Kawakami and Sanchez, both are... Very capable of a good outing, very capable of a bad outing, and you have a team in the Marlins, and the Braves to some extent, but really the Marlins, these guys are feast or famine teams. They're just, I mean, you, I don't know that you could name, you could, but, but these are two of those teams that you just have no idea who's going to show up on a night-by-night -night basis, so I stayed away from that game pretty quickly. Uh, the Red Sox and the Rays, Lester and Shields, two phenomenal pitchers. Uh, Lester, of course, has been ridiculous of late, as he always is after April. Um, and then Shields is just the workhorse. And so this is one of those games, again, if, if you bet a game or a side uh, on, on this particular game, Lester and Shields, I'm not really quite sure how you're so sure, I guess, is what I'm getting at. So I stay away from that game. Phillies and Mets, Moyer and Dickey, uh, your initial gut, you know, the average person jumps, oh, Phillies, they're affordable Phillies. And, well, Dickey's a knuckleballer. 
And if you saw what Tim Wakefield did to the Phillies the other day, you'll know to stay away from this game, I think, as well. And Jamie Moyer is Jamie Moyer. You don't know if he's going to throw a gem or if he's going to you know, get shelled for five runs early. Mahalam and Leak, the Pirates and the Reds. Uh, Reds just a little too expensive here for my tastes. And they've definitely got the starting pitching advantage with Mike Leak, although Paul Mahalam is capable for sure. Don't sleep on Paul Mahalam. Uh, but I just can't put money behind the Pirates against a really hot Cincinnati Reds team. But they are the Reds that is just a little uh, too expensive for my taste. Kershaw and Dempster. This was a game that I was really, really tempted by. Uh, the Dodgers at the Cubs um, really poured into, you know, this is one of those games that I was really interested in. So I delved deep into the sabermetrics of it all. And, you know... Kershaw is one of these guys who's got like a 3.56 FIP, something like, you know, we're like a really good one. And Dempster, on the other hand, um, he was just actually not too far behind that. Or actually, yes, he was. He was, uh, what did he have? He had a 4.08 FIP. So you're talking about a half run difference. And Dempster has a BABIP, batting average balls in play, of 252, which indicates that he's been really fortunate up to this point this year. So I actually was really leaning Dodgers. The reason that I stayed off that is because Dempster has some sick um, home numbers, if I'm not mistaken, or numbers against the Dodgers. Um, and, of course, I don't have those called up in front of me. But there was something about uh, Ryan Dempster specifically where you looked at how his his track record was against the Dodgers. I think he's been very successful. Oh, yeah, last year against the Dodgers. Um, it's coming back to me now. I think it was like 2-0. and But his ERA was 0.00. He, like, did not give up a single run against the Dodgers in, I want to say, 14 innings pitched. It's amazing how this stuff sort of comes back to me after a night of sleep. And so, or 14, don't get me, if it's not 14, it's not 14, but you get the idea. It's some hybrid of two games where he didn't give up a single run. So he basically owned them. And Dempster's a really good pitcher at home. So it was enough to back me off it, even though I really wanted to pull the trigger on the Dodgers. I can't go either way on that game. Astros at Brewers, Felipe Paulino is actually a much better pitcher than meets the eye. Um, But the Brewers shell him. He's got an 8.53 ERA in four career games against the Brew Crew. Um, Brewer's a little too expensive here, if I recall correctly. Let me see the lines. Um, Wasn't willing to pull the trigger on them, but... Oh, no. Yes, correct. Brewers were, like, at minus 160 now. They're a little too expensive. Um, And I just can't, in my right mind, back the Padres in this game because the Brewers are capable of exploding at any point on them. Yankees and Twins, sort of my same Red Sox-Rays analysis, which is a very brief one, which is, yeah, I just don't see the edge either way. I just don't. How about that for a five-word, six-word take on it? Burnett and Baker, both capable, both capable of getting beat up by these teams. Just one of those things where... You can't fight it. That's one of the big things in, in handicapping. There are some games where I really delve into, like that Dodgers game. Man, did I want to take the Dodgers. But the numbers don't lie. You cannot fight the numbers. And in a game like this Yankees-Twins game, I just can't fight the fact 
I, I can try to find an edge in, in one of these teams, but as hard as I try, can't get to that. And so your job as a handicapper and as a saber capper is to respect the numbers. Harden and Mesh, Rangers at the Royals, whenever the Royals play, I think the knee-jerk is to see what the value is on the other team. Um, yeah, Rich Harden. Not, uh, not very reliable. Rich Harden doesn't really get far into games on a regular basis at all, which sort of plagued him this year. And I just didn't think there was enough on the Rangers to go with here. Certainly didn't want to back the Royals in this spot. But for me, there was not enough value on Rich Harden to make a run here at the Rangers. There was other reasons, and I'm trying to remember what it was. But suffice to say, I didn't like Harden's Saber metrics. Um, and I wasn't going to back him in this spot. Even at uh, the price, what is the price right now? Even at uh, minus 135. Oh, that was part of the equation too. I just thought even for Harden and the Rangers, minus 135 was a little too pricey. And you, have, and you know I have no problem pulling the trigger on minus 135 games. But I just didn't see that there was a, a tremendous amount of value in the Rangers against the Royals today. Ian Kennedy and the D-backs at Chassin. Julie Chassin and the Colorado Rockies. Kennedy pitched very well for us when we backed him against the Giants the other night. But wow, this is a Rockies offense. And as soon as we get to a Diamondbacks bullpen situation, good Lord, what could happen? Stayed away from this game. Stayed as far away from this game as possible. Shasin's been shaky after a great start. So again, that works the other direction too. Very tempted by the Cardinals and Adam Wainwright at minus 140 last night against John Garland and the Padres. Very tempted. And I mean very tempted. But, I'm curious to see what that line is right now. And it's at minus 130 now. So perhaps based on line movement, if you're into such things, I trusted a very solid inclination there. Um, the reason I stayed off it, line movement aside, because as you know, that's not my thing in baseball, um, is that I just, John Garland has been good enough and certainly good enough at Petco Park where I just have a feeling uh, Garland's ERA at Petco was something like 1.08 or something like that. Forgive the fact that I don't have every single one of these stats in front of me. I'm doing it off memory from last night. But Garland has been... Sabermetrically, by the way, Garland is not as good as meets the eye. That was the one thing where I was really tempted then to pull the trigger after my first lean on the Cardinals. I was really tempted to pull the trigger on them again, especially after I saw that Garland has you know, a 262 BABIP. Again, suggesting that he's been fortunate this year. And his, you know, XFIP is 4.77. Trust me, that's not that good. Whereas Wainwright is like, he's got, Wainwright has the fifth best FIP in all of baseball at 2.74. But, but, he's been kind of fortunate too with a 267 BAPIP. His XFIP is about three and a half. 
And I don't know, when you go to Petco and play the Padres, stuff just happens. Games are low scoring. The Padres play so much better, it seems, on a historical basis. Not necessarily this year. They're playing great in general this year. And the Padres are, you know, they're a team that's really doing well this year. The Cardinals are struggling. I just stayed away. I just did not think, you know, that, that Garland home ERA and his performance at Petco really conjured up my very West Coast knowledge of how the Padres play down there at Petco. There's just a feel to it, and I just I couldn't pull the trigger on the Cardinals for that reason. So that's an example of a game where even when the sabermetrics told me you may want to pull the trigger on the Cardinals last night, I didn't want to lay minus 140 on it. Now, had that game been minus 120 or minus 110, I probably would have absolutely have taken the Cardinals. But in a, in a slate of 15 games where I saw others with better value, this was one of those where I was like, you know what, I, I don't think it's worth. The, the value on laying minus 140 in this particular game not only is not there based on the game alone, but in comparison to some of the other ball games, there's just better choices to me. So I did not pull the trigger on the Cardinals, and a lot of that is just by watching baseball and watching baseball in San Diego. Here's a game that I'm sure a lot of people were expecting me to pick. Ricky Romero and the Blue Jays. Ricky Romero, of course, along with Sean Markham, probably two of uh, my daily pregame forum threads MVPs, if not the two single biggest MVPs this season. Ricky Romero was at plus 100 against Irvin Santana last night. Don't know what he is now. Let's see. Probably somewhere around there, I would imagine. But I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it for basically it distills down to one major reason that I could not get out of my mind as I'm looking here. Toronto, Toronto, Toronto. Uh, Ricky Romero's at minus 105 now, so it's basically just a nickel difference. Irvin Santana threw a complete game. I believe it was one hitter against the Blue Jays in April. Is that correct? No, four hitter. Gave up one earned run, complete game, one earned run on four hits against the Blue Jays earlier this year. After you see that, you just are like, okay, I'm not touching it. And Romero is just wild enough. And Santana is one of these guys over the years that always flummoxes me. When I back him, he pitches terribly. When I fade him he pitches like Cy Young he's just he's one of these guys that I stay as far away from as possible because you don't know what he's capable of on any given night so Romero was one of these numbers that jumped off the page but then I'm like yeah I don't know he kind of owned Santana did he kind of own the Blue Jays last time I saw it and there's no denying it so I stayed off it stayed as far away as possible Nationals and Giants Levon Wellemeyer. Wellemeyer's great at home. Levon can be great on any given night. Um, yeah, I'm not touching that game. You, you, you I would, I don't know. You've, you're a better man than I if you can figure out that matchup. But I did take Justin Verlander. I did take the Tigers over the Mariners. Um, to me, I never thought we'd get Justin Verlander and the Tigers at this affordable of a price anymore this season. But in fact, we have. I'm going to check the numbers right now, see what they are. Still at minus 125 for Verlander. A lot of respect for Doug Fister. 
and the Seattle Mariners. Fister has been great for the Mariners this year. But as I mentioned in the thread, oh, I like some of the numbers. Here's the deal. Verlander's just been on fire of late, as everyone sort of knows now. Four out of his last five appearances, he's given up either one earned run or zero earned runs. 51 to 21, strikeout to bases on ball ratio. Fister's a pitch-to-contact guy. He's had six quality starts and eight appearances. Safeco Field is a great place for him to pitch. Balls do not fly out of there. Uh, Verlander and Fister's big thing, both of them, is the right-handed pitchers who murder right-handed batters. 163 is the average against Verlander from righties. Fister's um, opponent's batting average by right-handed batters is 168. The problem for Fister, as I point out in the thread today, is that the Tigers' right-handed bats could not care less. Maglio Ordonez, 331 hitter with a 411 on base percentage against righties. Cabrera is a 326 hitter with a 404 on base percentage against righties. Austin Jackson at the top of the lineup, even better than all that, 397 batting average against righties with a 450 on base percentage. Um, you know, all that to say. By the way, Cabrera is not in the lineup. His wife is giving birth, I think, to their second child. So Fister is catching a break, not having to face Cabrera. But if you look even further than that, um, Fister's batting average balls in play against 231, which suggests he's been extremely fortunate thus far this season. And his ERA, which the public is looking at at 1.96, is a gulf away from his XFIP, a much more truer statistic of 4.26. So you're talking about 2.32 runs of difference between his ERA and his XFIP against a powerful Tigers offense whose right-handed batters aren't impressed with your mastery over right-handed batters. Not to mention that the Mariners have lost 7 of 9 and only scored a total of 2 runs in their last 2 games. Anyway, you get the point. I'm taking the Tigers at minus 125 for all of that. The Tigers and the A's being the only two plays of the day. Tigers at minus 125, A's at minus 105 for the reasons given. But that's sort of just the general process of going once through all 15 Major League Baseball games, making assessments off the top, seeing which games I want to dive into a second layer, making those assessments, seeing which games I want to dive into a third layer and even beyond. And it's a long process, as I'm sure all of you have with your handicapping, but that's what works for me with a healthy, healthy dose of sabermetrics. And based on what I was saying earlier, who knows where those sabermetrics are headed in the future? I have my thoughts. We'll see. Do you imagine? Well, I know Miguel Cabrera has an angle off his bat, that is an optimal range 65% of the time, indicating he will be successful more often than the next guy. Who knows? Just throwing that out. I have no idea. But they could get to that kind of minutia. Angles off bats. Oakland and the Tigers are the pick today. Um, check out the daily thread in terms of when we're selling packages. Could be tomorrow. Could be the next day. But yes, it could be tomorrow. Uh, I'll keep you updated on the thread as soon as I know something. 
Gil Alexander, your betting dork, pregame.com. As always, I so appreciate you listening. Forgive the long-windedness on the initial answer, but I did want to go through the evolution, you know, again, of sabermetrics for those who have not heard previous descriptions of it. Just sort of the brief 20-minute overview and sort of a game-by-game thought process on the ball games on the slate today. Thank you so much for listening, and it's base winner and the Sabermetrics picks from him tomorrow on the show. It's-